Welcome to the show, folks. This is session 42 of our synchronized study. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We're going to be in Luke chapter... Actually, we're starting in John chapter 10. John chapter 10, verses 22 to 42, and then we're going to be in Luke chapter 13. And last time, I started off the podcast by saying that Jesus was about to express emotions that could only be expressed by God himself. And we got into that a little bit, but it really gets strong here in this session. He's going to say some things and express some emotions that he would not be able to express unless he were God himself. John chapter 10, verse 22 says, After this, the Feast of Dedication was taking place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in Solomon's porch in the temple area. Now, folks, the Feast of Dedication was a Jewish feast, but it was not one of the feasts of the Lord. It was commemorated by the Jews themselves in 165 B.C. in commemoration of the cleansing and reopening of the temple after its desecration by the Syrian ruler Antiochus Epiphanes three years beforehand. This is something that took place in between the Testaments. There was a 400-year gap, prophetically speaking, uh, between the last book of the Old Testament and the days that John the Baptist came and announced the coming of Jesus. During that 400-year gap, there was an event that you could call a symbolic type of what the Antichrist is going to do later. Because the Syrian ruler did things that are very similar to what the Antichrist himself will do in the Jerusalem temple that's mentioned in Revelation. Daniel prophesied it, and um, what the Syrian ruler had done was so close to what the Antichrist is going to do is that many Jews thought the Syrian ruler was fulfilling Daniel's prophecy. But later we're going to find out in Matthew 24 and other places, Jesus is going to mention this abomination of desolation, again, implying that what they thought was the abomination of desolation really wasn't. Because it's going to happen in a much bigger way in the future. But anyway, what happened was this Syrian ruler defiled their temple in one of the worst ways imaginable. They had the Maccabean revolt, a lot of history if you want to get into that. Point is, the Jews cleansed the temple and they reopened it, rededicated it three years later. And when they did it, uh, they it was called the Feast of Dedication, also known as Hanukkah. That's what Hanukkah is. And even though it's not one of the official prophetic feasts of the Lord, we find Jesus here observing it. And in a way, it's going to turn out to be prophetic, because after the Antichrist defiles the temple in Revelation, there's going to be another revolt, only this time it's going to be the Jews against the Antichrist, And three and a half years later, the revolt will be over with because Jesus will be here. There's going to be a cleansing and rededication then. So I find that interesting. But anyway, it says, After this, the Feast of Dedication was taking place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in Solomon's porch in the temple area. So the Jews surrounded him and began asking him questions and saying, How long are you going to keep us in doubt and suspense? If you are really the Christ, the Messiah, then tell us so plainly and openly. My gosh, folks. I mean, Jesus responds, but this is when you almost want to pull your hair out if you've been reading the narrative up until now. You've got thousands of years of prophecy being written out on paper, what we today call the Old Testament. It said that he was going to be born of a virgin. It said he was going to be born in Bethlehem. 
the ministry of John the Baptist, the one who prepared the way. His ministry was prophesied in Malachi chapter 3. John the Baptist testified himself of who Jesus was. And then Jesus himself openly said he was the Messiah when people's hearts were opened. Remember the woman at the well? She said, I don't know, one of these days the Messiah is going to come. And when he does, he's going to explain to us the scriptures. And, and Jesus said, the person to whom you are speaking is he. And she got excited, ran into town, brought everybody back, and they all got saved. So he has presented himself openly as the Messiah. He's also done it candidly. He'll do it privately with some. He'll do it openly with others. But these people who are asking Jesus are now three years into his ministry. What more could he possibly do than he hasn't done? Verse 24, if you really are the Christ, the Messiah, tell us so plainly and openly. Jesus answered them, I have told you so, yet you do not believe me. The very works that I do by the power of my Father, and in my Father's name, they bear witness concerning me. They are my credentials. They are the evidence that support me. But you don't believe me because you are not of my sheep. As I said unto you, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give to them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father, which gave them to me, is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. Folks, this is Jesus speaking from the perspective of one who transcends space-time, as though he knew in advance before coming to the earth who would believe him and who wouldn't. If you'll remember, we cover this in session 22, John chapter 6, verse 37 to 40. Jesus said that all the Father gives to me shall come to me. And him that comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which has sent me. That of all which he has given to me, I should lose nothing, but should raise them up again at the last day. And this is the will of him that sent me, that every one which sees the Son and believes on him may have everlasting life. And I will raise them up at the last day. So how did Jesus start all of that? He said, all that the Father has given to me will come to me. Then fast forward to John chapter 10, verse 26. He tells them, you don't believe me because you're not of my sheep. As I said unto you, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life. They shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father, which gave them to me, is greater than all. And no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. Folks, this begins a controversial, paradoxical doctrine that creates a lot of division because people don't recognize the fact that God is outside time. The question comes up, who chose who first? That was the name of session 22. Who chose who first? Did I choose Jesus? Did I freely choose him and get saved and accept his sacrifice to pay for my sins? Did I do that of my own free will? Or was I merely fulfilling destiny because the Father chose me in Christ before the foundation of the world? It's surprising to many folks to find out that there is biblical evidence that both are true. Did God choose me first or did I choose him first? The answer is yes, both are true. It just depends on which side of the time domain you're looking. Jesus, knowing this, just cuts to the chase. Because the real reason why the Pharisees don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah is because of the hardness of their hearts. 
It's because of their refusal to believe, their rejection. Jesus is not in the mood to get into all of that. So when they say, well, why don't you just tell us that you're the Messiah? He says, well, I have told you, but you don't believe me because you're not one of my sheep. Well, how come we're not one of your sheep? Well, because the Father didn't give you to me. Well, why didn't the Father give us to you, Bill? Because of the hardness of your hearts. You've blasphemed the Holy Spirit. You've rejected the truth. If they had kept asking questions in that direction, that's where this conversation probably would have gone. But instead, it went in this direction. Verse 31, the Jews took up stones to kill him. See, Jesus knew that's where it would go. So why get into it, you know? Actually, I skipped a verse. Let's back up to John chapter 10. Let's, let's go back to verse 26. Jesus said, you don't believe me because you are not of my sheep. As I said unto you, my sheep hear my voice. And I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. Folks, let's look at verse 28. They shall never perish. Is it possible for one of Jesus' sheep to wander off, turn his back on the shepherd, get lost from the fold, and then perish? Not if this verse is true. If any sheep of the Lord's ever perished, then Jesus would be guilty of failing to keep this promise. Now, sheep can wander off. They can turn their back on the shepherd. They can get lost from the fold. But they can never perish because it's the shepherd's job to make sure that that never happens. It's not the sheep's job to keep the sheep. It's the shepherd's job to do that. It's the shepherd who keeps the sheep. I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. So this is Jesus making a double statement here. First of all, he's saying they're never going to perish. But just to make sure people understand what that means, he's saying it's not possible for them to be taken out of my hand once they're in my hand. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. Are you a man? Are you a human being? Then that means you can't do anything to pluck yourself out of Jesus' hand. The word man there in the original Greek implies anyone. So that could include fallen angels. Satan cannot pluck you out of Jesus' hand. And just in case you don't think that's enough, look at the next verse. Then Jesus says, My Father, which gave them to me, is greater than all. And no man is able to pluck them out of my father's hand. So basically, you've got Jesus holding you tight. You've got the father holding you tight. And then we find out from the letters of Paul that when we're saved, we're not just baptized into the Holy Spirit. We are sealed in the Holy Spirit. The one who makes the seal is the only one with the authority to unloose the seal or break the seal, and he ain't going to do it. So, folks, when you get saved, you've got all three members of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, holding you tightly in their hand. And you've got both the Father and the Son saying, we're not letting go. Sorry. Yeah, Josh, but what about sin? Well, what about it? Psalm 37, verse 24 says, Though he may fall... He shall not be utterly cast down, for the Lord upholds him with his hand. Every word is there by design, folks. Jesus says, You don't believe me because you are not of my sheep. As I said unto you, my sheep hear my voice. 
and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them to me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. Verse 30. I and my Father are one. Then the Jews took up stones to kill him. Now, folks, that verse, I and my Father are one, that is a verse that has caused a lot of controversy, and <laughs> rightfully so, because it is Jesus giving them exactly what they asked for. He said, why don't you just tell us plainly and openly? Well, here he is. I and my Father are one. Not only is he the Messiah, he's God himself in the flesh. A lot of people say Jesus never claimed to be God. They've never read the book of John. And look at the Pharisees and what they're doing. They're picking up stones to kill him. Why are they doing that? It's not because Jesus claimed to be a prophet. He said, I and the Father are one. They're angry with him for saying that because of what it implies. Not only does it imply equality with God, it implies that the power is equal. Look at this in the context of what Jesus is saying here. Jesus in verse 28 is talking about no man's ability to pluck the sheep out of the son's hand. Look at he says, they never will perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. Jesus is speaking of his own hand. My father which gave them to me is greater than all. No man is able to pluck them out of my father's hand. And then Jesus says, I and my father are one. And that's when the Pharisees picked up stones to kill him. Verse 31, verse 32, Jesus answered them and said, Many good works have I showed you from my father. For which of those works do you now wish to stone me? The Jews replied, We are not going to stone you for a good work, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, make yourself out to be God. Jesus answered, Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? This is Psalm 82 that Jesus is quoting from, and folks, just for the sake of context, let's go over there and look at it. Because this is Jesus manipulating the conversation, knowing that these people are not going to believe him. I love it. When Jesus knows that they will not listen to him no matter what he says, then he starts manipulating the conversation using their own logic against them. Because that is what they've been doing all along with him. They are listening to every single word that comes out of Jesus' mouth, not in an effort to learn anything, but in order to entrap him. So he turns it around on them. Okay, you want to play word games? Let's do that. You're going to stone me because I claim to be God? Now, he could make a case that he is, but he doesn't go there. Instead, he uses a quote from Psalm 82, which has nothing to do with this, but it's just priceless. Let's look at Psalm 82. This is a psalm in which God is judging against corrupt judges. Very interesting psalm to read in these times. It's a psalm of Asaph, starting in verse 1, Psalm 82. God stands in the congregation of the mighty. He judges among the gods. How long will you judge unjustly and accept the persons of the wicked? Defend the poor and the fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and the needy. Deliver the poor and the needy. Rid them out of the hand of the wicked. They know not, neither will they understand, that they walk on in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are out of course. I have said you are gods, and all of you are children of the Most High, but you shall die like men, and fall like one of the princes. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all nations. 
And let me just read what Henry Morris wrote in his study Bible, the study notes under this. It says, the word gods is the Hebrew Elohim, the usual word for God. There, however, it is applied to human judges to whom the word of God had come. However, the word had never come to Jesus. He himself was the word whom the Father had sent into the world. No mere man, not even a human judge, was ever sent into the world with such a mission. Yet they had been called gods. These human judges or gods had been rebuked for failing to dispense true justice. Therefore, God had sent his son into the world to accomplish true justice, thereby fulfilling the prophecy of Psalm 82, verse 8. These fallible and unjust human judges had been called gods, supposedly acting in the name of the true God and judge. So surely it is more appropriate for them to recognize Jesus as the Son of God. Verse 33, the Jews replied, We are not going to stone you for a good work, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, make yourself out to be God. Jesus answered, Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? So men are called gods by the law, men to whom God's message came, and the scripture cannot be set aside or canceled. If that is true, do you say of the one whom the Father consecrated and dedicated and set apart for himself and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then don't believe me. But if I do the works of my Father, even though you don't believe me, at least believe the works and have faith in what I do, in order that you may know and understand that the Father is in me. And I am in the Father. I am one with him. They sought again to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. And folks, when you look at the original Greek of those words in that sentence, it implies that he moved without walking. What I've been calling a slip through hyperspace. It was a supernatural event that he eluded their grasp. Verse 40. He went back again across the Jordan to the locality where John was when he first baptized. And there he remained. And many came to him, and they kept saying, John did not perform a single sign or miracle, but everything John said about this man was true. And many people there became believers in him. Now, folks, that's interesting. Here John the Baptist was. He's dead now, because Herod had him killed. But the people of that area remember John's testimony. And now Jesus is there himself. And even though John didn't have a single miracle to showcase his authority, Everything he said about this man was true. So because of that, and it just goes to show you that the, you know, miracles do not impress people as much as seeing God's word validated. It's To me, that's the biggest miracle. Now to stick with our chronological synchronized study, let's get over to Luke chapter 13. Starting in verse 22, it says, Jesus journeyed on through towns and villages, teaching and making his way back toward Jerusalem. And someone asked him, Lord... Will only a few be saved? It's a very interesting question for somebody to ask him because whoever this was that asked the question obviously observed that Jesus was popular and yet his followers never stuck around long. People would join and gather around and get excited and eventually would fall away because of something that Jesus said that they didn't agree with. Or they would be oppressed by the religious leaders, or maybe their family members didn't agree. Jesus, as big as his following was, it was in the minority. And so this person, whoever it was, asked the question, will only a few be saved? But Jesus responded, 
Verse 23, it says, he said unto them. In other words, he answers the question, but he's addressing everybody there. Jesus says, strive to enter in at the straight gate. For many, I say unto you, will seek to enter in and shall not be able. Now that's going to be continued in the next verse. He's going to elaborate on the not be able part. Let's start off where it says striving to enter in at the straight gate. First of all, you don't strive with your own merit or works. He's not saying strive in and, and earn your salvation. What he's saying is there's only one way in here, and it's a straight shot, and it's very simple. It's right there. He's been explaining all along what it is, but it is something that is so simple, and yet man's wisdom just will not accept it. You mean God comes down here? And pays for the sin debt. And all I have to do is allow that to be somewhat of a balance transfer. And I humbly accept that. Acknowledging to him that I'm a sinner and that he's God and I am now his child. You mean it's not about going to church and being an elder in the church and giving to the church and leading up these big prayer meetings and becoming a deacon and an elder or a pastor or a bishop? You mean it's about a personal relationship with God? Through being baptized in the Holy Spirit, reading His Word, understanding it, talking to God every day, being obedient to what I read as best I know how, with God's help along the way, and with each passing day, I get to know God better? You mean, that's what this is about? It's so easy, and yet it takes striving, because folks, even experienced, seasoned Christians can get caught in the trap of turning their love relationship with God into a religion. It happens to the best of us. We can't help it. It's something in our nature. Jesus said, strive to enter in at the straight gate. What is the gate, folks? Jesus is the door, right? John chapter 10, verse 9 said that. He's going to say in John 14, verse 6, that he is the way. Strive to enter in at the straight gate. For many, I say unto you, will seek to enter in and shall not be able. When once the master of the house is risen up and has shut the door and you begin to stand without and knock at the door saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. And he shall answer and say to you, I know you not. And then shall you begin to say, we have eaten and drank in your presence and you've taught in our streets. But he shall say, I tell you, I know you not. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you shall see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and you yourselves thrust out. And they shall come from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south and shall sit down in the kingdom of God. And behold, there are some now who are last who will be first then. And there are some now who are first who will be last then. Folks, I want to talk about a few different positions on the verses we just read and i'm going to tell you straight up front i am not certain about how to interpret these last few verses i think i know what he's saying but i got to be honest with you i'm not 100 percent certain there's some tough stuff in here and let me just go ahead and give you the explanation for what jesus just said according to some of the reference materials that i've been reading through and i'm going to give you my own impression as to what I think this is. Verse 24, Jesus said, Strive to enter by the narrow door. Force yourselves through it. For many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able. Now, what does that mean? 
if Jesus is the door, if salvation is what he's talking about, and that's what most of the commentators believe, when does salvation stop? When does the offer of salvation stop? There are those who believe that it stops at death. Once you cross that line, there is no more option. Your option was before you died. But when you keep reading what Jesus says, he's not talking about death. He's talking about the coming of the millennial reign when Jesus comes back to the earth. So he's not talking about death. He's talking about the millennial reign. And he says in verse 25, when once the master of the house gets up and closes the door and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us. He will answer you. I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, but we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. Now let's stop it there. We ate and drank in your presence. You taught in our streets. Is it possible Jesus is referring to the Jews of the generation that he's living in there? Is he talking to Israel of that century? Because that would make sense. People who are not saved for the last 2,000 years cannot say to Jesus when they knock on the door, Hey, we ate and drank in your presence. You taught in our streets. I can't say that. But the Jews who were alive during Jesus' day, they could say that. Assuming that they can get in, that they've got special position because, hey, they ate and drank in his presence. Somebody like Judas, for example. Judas ate and drank in his presence, but, you know, I don't think he's getting in. So some people think that what Jesus is speaking of here is the physical time period of the first century that he's speaking about those particular Jews who were there with Jesus. Jesus is not speaking in general of how to get saved or getting saved. He's telling them, those people, in Luke chapter 13, this is not in any of the books that I've read. This is just one possible view that I thought of while reading this. It's possible Jesus is talking to that crowd specifically. He's telling them, you guys, enter by the narrow door. Strive to enter by the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able. Who are the many? He's talking about the many who were there in Jesus' day. Many will try to enter and will not be able when once the master of the house gets up and closes the door. In other words, Jesus is giving Israel an opportunity. He's been there for three years. The door's still open. They could still politically and publicly embrace him as their Messiah. But they haven't done it yet. But he can still call out to the individual. Nationally, it ain't going to happen. At least not in the first century. But individually. That's why he says to them, Strive to enter by the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able when once the master of the house gets up and closes the door. And you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door again and again, saying, Lord, open to us. He will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, but we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you wrongdoers. There will be weeping and grinding of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves being cast out 
vanished, driven away. And people will come from the east and the west and from the north and the south and sit down and feast at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, there are some now who are last who will be first then. And there are some now who are first who will be last then. When Jesus starts bringing up the millennium, it takes a different side to this, folks, especially since he's speaking of himself in the third person. Jesus speaking of himself in the third person, speaking of the millennium, when he will bring the kingdom of God from heaven to the earth. When that happens, Jesus will no longer be just the subject of a Bible study. He will physically be here in Jerusalem, ruling from David's throne. And everything he says, everything he does, everything he's doing will be front page news on every newspaper, every news report, every YouTube channel, every website and blog, provided all of that stuff will still be around after the tribulation. Point is, he will be the number one exciting topic of interest in those days. And everybody, everywhere, will want to be part of whatever he's doing, whatever the project that's in the works, everybody will want to be in the big middle of all the excitement. And not everybody will be allowed to be. And that's going to be what causes weeping and grinding of teeth, not so much the pain and suffering of hell, because those who are in Hades are not going to have the opportunity to knock on anybody's door or see Abraham and Isaac and all the people from the east, north, south, and west get together. They're not going to get to see any of that stuff. The predominant view in everything I read, what Jesus is saying here, according to everything I read, was that he's saying, look, I'm the only way into heaven and you need to get saved before time wraps up, because if you don't, uh, you're not going to be able to get saved after I return and set up the kingdom. And folks, that might be what he's saying. I, I just want to admit that to you. That could be true. But there's too many loose ends in the text here. I'm more prone to think that what's taking place is somewhat of a rewording of what Jesus has already expressed in Matthew chapter 8, verse 5 to 13. We talked about that in session 15. I could be wrong, but I don't think Jesus is referring to people who will be cast into hell. What makes us start off thinking that he is is because the question that was put to Jesus was, how many will be saved? Will only a few be saved? And then in verse 24, Jesus said, Strive to enter by the narrow door. Force yourself through it. For many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able. When you read that, it sounds like he's starting to talk about what you and I would call salvation. But when you keep reading, he's not talking about salvation. He's talking about getting into the kingdom. Well, what's the kingdom? As New Testament Christians, we think of the kingdom as being heaven. But folks, Israel was not looking forward to dying a physical death and going to heaven. That's not what they were looking forward to. They were looking forward to the fulfillment of prophecies all throughout the Old Testament, which spoke of God bringing heaven to the earth. In Malachi chapter 4, it's prophesied that Israel's Messiah would tread down the wicked, establish an earthly kingdom, bringing in universal peace. Now, the universal peace is prophesied in Isaiah chapter 2. And that peace would not only be between peoples and nations, but even among all the animals, according to Isaiah 11. This coming kingdom was promised by God to King David in Psalm 132 to be a Jewish kingdom. So individually speaking, as far as the nation of Israel was concerned, individual Jews, this is what they were looking forward to. 
Unfortunately, on a grand scale, the majority of those living in first century Israel were not looking forward to these prophecies being fulfilled. Some of them were, but not all of them, certainly not nationally. So that's the context of what this guy is thinking of when he asks Jesus the question. He's not talking about people being reborn in the Holy Spirit, accepting the death on the cross. Jesus hadn't died on the cross yet. And even though Jesus has already foretold his death, his disciples don't get it. That's been mentioned over and over again. They don't get it. So what he's asking them is, Master, when you bring in your kingdom and you tread down the wicked and Satan's put in chains and heaven is brought to the earth and you're finally ruling the universe from your throne, Of all the people we're dealing with here and now, how many of them are going to be saved into that kingdom? Jesus' answer, verse 24, Strive to enter by the straight and narrow gate. What is the straight and narrow gate? Why is it narrow? Because there's not much time left. Jesus has already been here for three years. The last session we talked about the parable of the fig tree. As far as God the Father is concerned, if you believe that parable, he's done. He's through with Israel, but it's the Son who says, let's wait a little longer. But Jesus already knows, since he was outside time before he came, that Israel is not going to turn around. That's why in the very same verse it says, For many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able when what? Verse 25, when once the master of the house gets up, meaning after his resurrection, and closes the door. He doesn't close the door for salvation. That's the new covenant. He closes the door on the old covenant temporarily. We know it's not permanent because Jesus goes on to say later in verse 28 that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God will be there. So the kingdom is coming because God is a God who keeps his promises. Unfortunately for first century Israel, it didn't come in their time because of their faithlessness. Verse 25, when once the master of the house gets up and closes the door and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us. He will answer to you that I do not know where you come from. And folks, people who are in Hades are not going to be knocking on anybody's door trying to get into anything or anywhere. They're in prison. Verse 27, Jesus says, But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. And then you will begin to say, But we ate and drank in your presence. You taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you wrongdoers. There will be weeping and grinding of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. People in Hades aren't seeing anything. They are going to be weeping and grinding of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves being cast forth, driven away. And people will come from the east and the west and from the north and the south and sit down and feast at table in the kingdom of God. Jesus said this before in our session 15, Matthew chapter 8, verse 5 to 13. We covered all the different views, the same controversy that we're facing here was faced then in that particular podcast. Verse 30, And behold, there are some now who are last who will be first then, and some who are now first who will be last then. Folks, I could be wrong, but I think what we're talking about here is position of authority in the kingdom when Jesus brings it. 
A lot of us were taught that everybody's going to be sitting on an equal playing field in heaven, and that's not biblical. There's actually a time in the beginning, and I think it's during the millennial reign, the, the, the thousand-year reign, where people, the faithful, who got into the kingdom because of what Jesus did, he's the foundation. Jesus the one that shed the blood on the cross. We're all there because of him. But that was the foundation. What we did with that after we got saved will influence our position in the kingdom. And that's what Jesus means when he says there are some who are first here who are going to be last there. In other words, the big shots, a lot of big shots around today. Pastors, deacons, in Jesus' day, Pharisees and Sadducees. A lot of powerful big shots who are first now, Jesus said, who's going to be last then. Now, they're still there. But the people who were reading the word, the people who were faithfully following the Lord, the people who were saved, who were listening, who were his sheep, who were doing what he said, and nobody knew it but God, they're the ones that are going to be first in the kingdom. I don't want to belabor this too much because we spent a whole lot of time. If you want to really examine this peculiar viewpoint, because it is peculiar, um, we got into it in session 15 of the synchronized study, Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 to 13. He heals a centurion servant, and uh, the centurion is a Gentile. And this centurion showed faith that Jesus hadn't seen from anybody in all of Israel. So Jesus was trying to make the point, just because you are a son of Abraham, just because you're Jewish, don't think that's going to give you special privileges in the kingdom, because there are many who are first now who are going to be last then. Many who are last now are going to be first then. And I think that's the whole point. This is not talking about people being cast into hell and weeping and grinding their teeth. There are verses that cover that, where it uses that phrase. This is not one of them, I don't think. Verse 32, oh, excuse me, verse 31. At that very hour, some Pharisees came up and said to him, Go away from here, for Herod is determined to kill you. And Jesus said to them, You go and tell that sly, crafty, sulking, and cowardly fox. Behold, I drive out demons and perform healings today. And tomorrow and on the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must continue on my way today and tomorrow. And the day after that, for it will never do for a prophet to be destroyed away from Jerusalem. Folks, this is Jesus using sarcasm. And yet... He knows that Jerusalem will fall in 70 AD. That's something to think about. Why does God allow the wicked to do the things they do? It's because he wants them to be worthy of the judgment that's coming. Verse 34, Jesus says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And I, I have no idea how this sounded. I get the impression when I read this, Jesus was on his knees crying. He said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who continue to kill the prophets and to stone those who were sent to you. How often I have desired and yearned to gather your children together around me as a hen gathers her young under her wings. But you would not. Behold, your house is forsaken, it's abandoned, left to you destitute of God's help. And I tell you, you will not see me again until the time comes when you shall say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Folks, this is the first of two times that Jesus will say this. 
The next time will be a few months later after his final public sermon. And when you read this, folks, this is an indication. His personal grief extends from beyond time. He's remembering sending prophets to Jerusalem over and over and over again, being stoned, being killed. And his grief is one who is personally hurting for their behalf. Look at verse 35. Jesus said, Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. And verily I say unto you, you shall not see me again until the time come when you shall say, Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. What's he talking about? He's not talking about the next few months because they are going to see him again when he comes in on a donkey. They're going to see him again when they crucify him. He's talking about beyond that window after the door has been shut. He's grieving over the next 2,000 years. He's grieving over the Spanish Inquisition. He's grieving over the Nazi Holocaust. Forty years after Jesus was crucified, Israel fell in 70 A.D., and the children of Israel had no homeland for the next 1,878 years. So many God-given promises about Israel's Messiah were still unfulfilled. What about treading down the wicked? What about the earthly Jewish kingdom that would endure forever? What about the universal peace that would extend even to the animals? When will Israel's Messiah return to fulfill all of these unfulfilled promises? The answer to that question is in verse 35. You shall not see me again until the time when you shall say, Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. And folks, that's prophesied in the Old Testament. In Hosea chapter 5, that a future generation in Israel will one day acknowledge their offense against their Messiah and request his return. And when they do, God said, quote, in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications, and they shall look upon me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one mourns his only son. Israel's Messiah was not accepted in the first century, but he's prophesied to return to the planet Earth and fulfill all of the Old Testament prophecies at the request of a future Israel to imprison Satan in chains and establish his kingdom. That is why Satan has done everything he possibly can to wipe out the Jews to stop that prophecy from being fulfilled. If there's no Jews on Earth to request Jesus' return, then Jesus can't fulfill all of his promises. Now, God also promised that he would pour the spirit of grace upon not just the house of David, but upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem. That's why Satan has done everything he can to keep Jews out of Jerusalem. But in spite of almost 2,000 years of wandering without a homeland, in spite of every satanic attempt to wipe out the Jews, including the slaughter of 6 million Jews under the Nazi regime, Israel was reborn on May 14th of 1948. And here's why this is important to you and me as Bible-believing Christians. The return of Israel in the 20th century after 19 centuries of wandering without a homeland, that's an indication of what time it is on God's clock. The remnant of Jews who will acknowledge Jesus as Israel's Messiah and officially request his return could very well be alive today. 
Since 1948, Satan has influenced attack after attack after attack against the little state of Israel, and they're still there. Israel's continual existence is a testament to God's faithfulness toward keeping his promises and fulfilling his covenant with Israel. The New Testament never replaced the Old Testament. It came alongside the Old Testament. Our God is not a God who breaks old promises only to make new ones. Our God keeps all of his promises, old and new. The hatred that surrounds Israel is a testament to Satan's fear and desperation, because as long as Israel exists, Satan's days are numbered. We're going to leave it right there, folks, until the next time. Until then, we're out of here. Take care.